Well, if you want to find your Bibles, we're going to be looking at the Gospel of Matthew and starting in chapter 4, so if you want to find that, but certainly if you are aware of the news, and how can you not be? We are living in the midst of the unraveling of our society. It's as if this crushing stroke is being brought down, and we're experiencing the pain and the anguish, brokenness, fear. I mean, months ago, several months ago, with the the start of this pandemic, the coronavirus, and all the destruction that it's brought, the deaths of so many people, and then so many others who have been made sick, Countless numbers of people who continually, like the medical personnel and and police, who are putting themselves on the line facing this virus. Not to mention that this coronavirus has had just a widespread devastation to our economy. So many people that are unemployed. And then, not only do we have this medical pandemic, but we have a societal one as well. If you're looking at all that's taking place, the anger the frustration, the pain. We have a couple of officers that break the law and a man by the name of George Floyd loses his life. And there's just just rightfully anger and upset. You see it in communities all throughout our country. It's expressed by policemen where you have a few cops that have done wrong and violated the law and have done so much damage to the trust that is built between those who protect our lives and our property and all the citizens who live in this country. And we're living in these kind of unparalleled times, the anguish, the hurt, and the brokenness, and the pain, and it seems to be everywhere. And a society needs to have a societal trust. We need to have the ability to actually experience unity there has to be stability, and there has to means, be a means of bringing justice in order for society to function and to thrive. And right now, that is being tested. And it's as if we're coming face to face with the reality that our world is broken. And if I could pick just one word to describe what we're experiencing and seeing and being face to, brought face to face with this reality is that we are broken. And is there any hope? I mean, does God offer any hope to a world, to a country, to a community, to an individual who is broken? I want you to know that if that's, if that's what you're really looking for, if we are at a point where we see the need so greatly with such clarity, if we really want hope and peace and justice, if we want to experience unity and a vibrancy of life, if we want to experience what it means to know that every single person is made in the image of God, I'll tell you, what we need is divine intervention. And that's what God has done and continues to do. I want to draw your attention to the Gospel of Matthew. I'm going to start in Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. I want you to see that God is in the business of bringing hope to a broken humanity. I mean, we're living, we've got all sorts of problems, 
And those are the ones we've talked about, but we, haven't, we still have poverty. We still have terrorism. We still have war. We have crimes of every stripe that occur. What we really need is God to step in. We need transformation, a total change, and that's what God offers. And the focal point of how God brings hope to a broken humanity is in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. All we have to do is go back to the very beginning of Jesus Christ's ministry on this earth to see how God brings hope to a broken world. And, you know, I want you to know that this isn't the first time in human history that you've had all these issues and problems and civil unrest, violence, looting, abuses of power, um, domination, uh, uh, worldwide injury and sickness and a lack of health. If you look at human history, that's kind of been the story. But what we need to do is step back 2,000 years ago and look at how God is bringing hope. And so just to kind of bring you to an understanding of where hope is found, I want to bring you back to Israel, specifically to Galilee, to a particular mountain. And that's what we find in the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23. The, the people of Israel had been living under very difficult circumstances for centuries, At the present time, back 2,000 years ago where this is written, uh, they had been dominated by Rome, literally controlled and overrun. But before that, it had been the Greeks. And then before that, it had been the Medo-Persian Empire. And then before that, it had been the Babylonians. And even when the people of Israel had their own kings, and they had a series of them, they still lived with all sorts of disappointment and difficulty and pain and anguish. You see, the people of Israel had the amazing privilege of having God be their absolute ruler and king. But they're like, nah, we don't really want you, God. We want to kind of be like all the other countries. We want to have our own king. We know best. And that never really worked out because if you look at Israel's history, very few times did they have times of just tranquility and peace and prosperity and well-being. And so God has stepped in. At a time of God's own choosing, 2,000 years ago, God sent his own son to enter into humanity, a broken world to bring hope, to bring his kingdom, to make things right. So how does God bring hope to a broken world? Well, the first thing he does is by drawing the people of the world to Christ. Take a look at it. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 23, Jesus was going throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. So here we have Jesus at the very beginning of his earthly ministry. And we have him, and you see that he is teaching. He's actually expressing and helping people understand his message. But with that, you also have that he is proclaiming or preaching. He is calling for response. It's not that he's just bringing information. He's calling for transformation. He's calling for decision. He's preaching. He's teaching. He's preaching, proclaiming. But notice what the text says. He is also healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. 
Certainly there were all sorts of physical maladies that at the touch of Jesus, people were made well. But there was also emotional healing and spiritual healing. All healing found and centered on this one, this God-man, Jesus. And notice where this teaching began. It says he began teaching in their synagogues. This was the place that the Jewish people would meet to pray, to experience corporate worship, and for the teaching and the reading of Scripture. And meeting in synagogues was a practice that got started during the time that they had been hauled off into the Babylonian, to the Babylonian Empire. And so they could no longer gather at the temple, and so they started synagogues, these meeting places. And that's where they would study and pray and learn. That's where a visiting rabbi like Jesus, a teacher, would come. And they would hear him not only read the Scriptures, but systematically explain what they meant And so that's what Jesus is doing. And as he's going, he's going to the synagogues, but he has a particular message. And that message is the gospel of the kingdom. Do you see that? He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. What is that? What is this good news of the kingdom? You see, the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is God's reign and rule through his Son. And it is the joy of all those who have eternal relationship with him. It is God's reign and rule through his Son, and it is the joy of all those who have eternal relationship with him. And so Jesus has a message. It is a message that the good news, that the kingdom has come because the king is here. So, How do you actually enter into God's kingdom? Well, I want you to know that this was the message that was given even by John the Baptist. Look, if you're in the Gospel of Matthew, look at Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. What was his message? John the Baptist said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What was Jesus' message? Chapter 4, verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and say, repent, for the kingdom of heaven of heaven is at hand. God's rule and reign through his son and the joy for all those who have eternal relationship with him, it's for those who repent. The word means to change direction, to change 180 degrees. It is to have a change of mind that leads to a change of heart, that leads to a change of direction, all because you have a changed relationship with God. You're coming with humility, and he is your only hope. And so that's the message that Jesus is proclaiming. He's proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, and he is proclaiming this to not only Jews, but to Gentiles, people who are non-Jewish. Take a look at the next verse, verse 24. And the news about him spread throughout all Syria. This would be the region to the north of Galilee. So Galilee is at the kind of the north end of Israel. These are even people north of that. Uh, And notice what they were doing. And they brought to him all who were ill, those suffering with various diseases and pains and demoniacs and epileptics and paralytics. And he healed them. You know, in the Old Testament history, there really aren't that many healings. But one of the hallmarks of the coming Messiah, God's anointed one, who would bring the forgiveness of sin through the sacrifice of himself, 
who is the promised son of David, the eternal king, one of the hallmarks so that you would never miss him is that he would be the one who would bring widespread healing. He would take our infirmities. He would make people well. And that's what he's doing. He is demonstrating that he is God. Jesus is showing the compassion of God. And furthermore, he is also showing that he is the one who is absolutely the promised Messiah because he fulfills all of the promises that are being made of the Messiah. For hundreds of years, God had been giving promises and prophecies so that the world would not miss his answer, his Messiah. And Jesus is doing all that. And furthermore, with Jesus healing all of these widespread diseases, what he's doing is showing that indeed he's making a legitimate offer of the kingdom to the people of Israel. And notice that he is demonstrating his deity, but what I want you to also see is that there are people from everywhere, not just Jews, the people of Israel, but Gentiles, the people of the world, they are all coming to one person. Take a look at verse 25. Large crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. You see, uh, Jerusalem and Judea, these were all Jewish people. They were all coming up north because they had to see Jesus. But then notice he also refers to the people of Galilee. And the people of Galilee in this northern region, their conservative estimate is there are about 300,000 people living in about 200 villages in this area. And it's really a mixture of Jews and Gentiles. But then you also have like the Decapolis. This is thoroughly pagan, totally non-Jewish, very Gentile area of these, these 10 cities, and it spoke of a general area. I want you to see that God offers hope to the world, and it's found in the person of Jesus Christ. You see, he is drawing the people of the world to Christ. If you really want peace, peace with God, peace with others, peace in our country, if we want to experience unity, we want to experience mercy, justice, forgiveness, life, it's found in one. It's found in Jesus Christ. He is showing that he is indeed the Savior of the nations. He is the world's Messiah. So how does God bring hope to a broken world? He does so by drawing the people of the world to Christ. But I want you to see something else, how he does this. He's also doing this by developing disciples in his kingdom. Take a look here then in Matthew chapter 5, verse 1. So here we have all the people of the world, and they're being drawn to Christ. Notice what Jesus does. He starts developing his disciples. Chapter 5, verse 1. When Jesus saw the crowds... He went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So here we have a situation where all the people of the world, and they're, why, they're, they're very diverse, widespread differences. They're young, they're old, some are wealthy, some are poor, some have great health difficulties and challenges, some are very healthy. They come from a widespread of beliefs. Some are Jews. Some are Gentiles. 
Some are not actually sure what they are. They kind of just go with the flavor of the day or depending on where they're at. And some are religious and some are rebellious. But I want you to see is that Jesus is drawing men and women, boys and girls to himself, and then he develops them as his disciples. And so the crowds are coming. And notice like the text says, he sat down. That would be the normal position for one who is a teacher, a rabbi. They would sit down and then people would gather around them to listen. And so that's what he does. And notice he went up on the mountain, okay? And where he's at is close to Capernaum. Um, There is a, a hill there. And he would go up there where he would have not only the ability to speak to hundreds and hundreds of people, but it actually gives just amazing view of the Sea of Galilee. And so he has come up onto this mountain. I want you to know that this is all very intentional. This isn't haphazard. Do you remember when Martin Luther King Jr. gave his great speech, I have a dream? I want you to know that careful attention was given as to where that speech was given. That speech was given in the shadow of the Lincoln Memorial because the great president, Abraham Lincoln, is the one who spoke of freedom. He is the one who gave some of the great addresses of our country, the Emancipation Proclamation. He is the one who gave the Gettysburg Address And you remember how Martin Luther King Jr.'s speech began? It began by saying, five score years ago. Does that sound familiar? Well, that's that's very familiar because it's very similar to how Abraham Lincoln began his Gettysburg Address. The very position of where Martin Luther King gave his speech and how he started it was all very intentional. It commanded respect. It brought the mind of and the social conscience of our country to think about where we are at and where we need to go. Well, so Jesus, on this mount, it's referred to as this sermon, as the Sermon on the Mount. He begins his speech, and what it would call to mind, this message, this great sermon, was Moses, who on Mount Sinai brought the words from God. And so we have Jesus, and he is going to give what we call the Sermon on the Mount. This is his kingdom manifesto. It tells us what the kingdom is, who is in it, how it is to function, and what is to look like. This is the absolute greatest sermon. And Jesus gave a version of the sermon on a regular basis. We absolutely cannot miss this because if we have been drawn to Christ— If we are truly in relationship with him, you need to know that God intends to do his work in and through his people. That's why he teaches. That's why his words are so critically important. The spirit of God takes the word of God to accomplish the work of God and the lives of individuals. And so Jesus is speaking and notice he is speaking and he sits down and who comes to him? His disciples came to him. What does it mean to be a disciple? It means to be a learner. If you would like a a definition of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, it's one who is in an intentional and relational process of maturing as a Christ-centered believer and who is being mobilized for ministry. A disciple is one 
who is in intentional and relational process of maturing as a Christ-centered believer and being mobilized for ministry. See, that's what God is going to do. That is how he brings hope to the world. He draws people to Christ, and then he develops those who have been drawn to him as his disciples. He wants us to grow and to mature because God intends to do his kingdom work through his people who are living in his, experiencing his reign and his rulership in their lives. That's what God is seeking to do. That is the only place that hope is going to be found. And so he begins, and he's, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He begins with a series of what has been called the Beatitudes, blessed. It comes from the Latin word beatus. It means blessed or very happy. Blessed, though, he says, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What does it mean, first of all, to be blessed? It means to have the God-given capacity to enjoy the goodness of him, and to extend it to others. To be blessed is not just to receive things, but it's to have the God-given capacity to enjoy the goodness of God and to be able to extend that to others. And so he begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. Now, this is so very interesting. How... Who are these poor in spirit? That's not what we think. Blessing, poverty, that doesn't work. We don't make that kind of connection. So who are these poor in spirit? Well, let's start off with who are the poor? We know who are poor. The people who are poor are those who they don't have, right? They're the ones without They don't have enough money. The poor don't have enough food. They don't have enough health care. The poor is that that dad who can't pay the rent and he's unemployed and he can't find a job. The poor is that single mom who's trying to raise those kids in a homeless shelter. The poor is that boy or young girl and they're standing in line right now in some refugee camp hoping that that big tub of rice doesn't go out and is gone by the time they get there. That's the poor. We understand that. They, the poor are those who understand their situation as in need. They're desperate. That is the poor, and we understand that. Now, Jesus is not teaching, well, the, the way to experience and be in the kingdom of heaven is that you just have to be impoverished, poor, You have to have no physical, material resources. You have to experience material poverty. Now, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. You see, the poor in spirit are like the poor materially. They simply are in great need. They're desperate. They they don't have what they absolutely need. They don't have forgiveness. They don't have enough faith. They don't have enough strength. They have fears and hopes. They don't have enough understanding. They 
need God and they know it. These are the poor in spirit. They have come to a place where they have a heart of humility. They need God. And he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The opposite of being poor in spirit is to be self-sufficient. I really don't need God because I have all these other options and these other resources, or I and myself have what I need. I want you to know self-reliance, the idea that you don't need God, that sin is at the very heart of humanity. In fact, you find it in the very first two people. You remember that? Adam and Eve. Remember what was going on there? I mean, things were great. God had blessed them. They were enjoying God. They were enjoying the blessings. But they had they faced a temptation, specifically Eve, when Satan came and said, hey, listen, you know, God's holding out on you. You... You know, God has told you not to eat the, the fruit of the tree of good and evil because he knows that when you do that, you'll be like God. Wouldn't you like to just be like God? Not really need him because you're like him. You've got pretty much everything you need. Wouldn't you like that? That temptation Eve couldn't walk away from. She tried to debate a little bit like, wait a second here. But Adam, on the other hand, he just capitulated. Both Adam and Eve bought into this lie that you could have independence from God while you could be like God. And I want you to know that self-centeredness, that drive, that sin to, to miss the mark, that's when it all began to unravel. And I want you to know that to be um, a person living in our country, so many are well-educated and well-off and well-fed. It's hard to see that we actually have needs. That's part of what's going on with this pandemic, this pandemic medically, this pandemic in our society. We are starting to see just how grievous and how great our need is. You see, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit for those are the ones who have the kingdom of heaven. You have to come to a place of absolute, total humility. None of the things that the world says you're blessed, like, oh, you got a lot of nice toys, and you live in a nice house, and oh, you got the perfect family or whatnot, you've got a lot of money, you got a lot of prestige, you got the great job. All the things that the world says, man, that's a blessed individual, God says, no, no, no. The people that are really experiencing uh, to the situation of being blessed to actually enjoy and to know God and be able to extend that kind of goodness to others, those are the ones who have come to a place of absolute poverty before him. Nothing in my hand I bring, simply to the cross I cling. Those are the ones that are blessed, and they are living with an eternal perspective. You see, this, this very verse tells us that salvation is all of grace. You and I don't bring anything to the table. No good behavior, no church attendance, none of that. All we bring is need. God gives salvation. He gives the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven, the reason that they would refer to the kingdom of heaven and not say the kingdom of God is the Jewish people never wanted to say God's name because they didn't want to run the risk of actually doing it reverently. 
And so they didn't want to say God's personal name, Yahweh, so they referred to his abode of where he lived as a reference to him, the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven is God's reign and rule through his son and those who are experiencing the joy of relationship with him. The only way you and I will experience the joys of being in his kingdom is we, if we come with absolute humility and God is our only hope. And until then, we're going to just have more of the same. You remember in Luke 18, there's this fascinating scene that is recorded and Jesus tells us about of two men who were praying. And one of them was a Pharisee, one of the religious elite, one of the great rule followers. They were steeped in legalism. In fact, they had reduced their relationship with God down to performance. And the other was this tax collector, a guy who was basically a Jew who had sold out to the Roman Empire and he was taxing his fellow Jewish people, making all sorts of money off them, putting all sorts of assessments. And Jesus said, you know, there was this Pharisee. And it actually says in Luke chapter 18, even verse 11, that he's praying to himself. He is actually like kind of walking through his own virtues and, and how he's such an upstanding citizen, all the good things he has done and what he hasn't done and how he's specifically so much better than sinners, especially this worthless sinner who's not very far from him, this tax collector who's also praying. But then Jesus said, you know, there's that. There's the Pharisee. He's praying to himself. But then there is that tax gatherer. And he wasn't even willing to lift up his head to heaven. In fact, Jesus said he's standing there and he's beating his breast. And he's saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. That's who I am. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. I know who I am. The world calls me blessed because I got all sorts of money and I got power and prestige and I got connections. I'm in with the Romans. But I know I'm a sinner. I am poor in spirit. You know what Jesus said? He said that Pharisee, you know, he's proud in spirit. And he, he goes home and nothing's changed. But the tax gatherer, why he goes home justified. Do you know why? Jesus says this, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. When you come to the place of absolute humility before God and say, I absolutely need you for life, for forgiveness, for salvation. I am sick and tired of my bad management and leadership in my own life. I need you. When you come to the place where you're trusting in Christ and Christ alone, like Jesus said, you are exalted. You are brought into the very kingdom of God. You are a child of the king. You live now with an eternal mindset. You will forever enjoy the the blessings and the benefits of just being a part of the kingdom because you're in a relationship eternally with the king. And until we come to that point, friends, we're never going to be in the kingdom of heaven, nor are we ever going to experience the peace that we so desperately want. Remember a guy by the name of Augustine uh, in about 400 AD, he wrote his book, Confessions. And you might know him as like, oh, I think that's some great like church leader. And he, yeah, he was. But he wasn't always that way. In his book, Confessions, he writes about just how wicked he was. Here was a guy who was so proud of his intellect 
of his wealth, of his education, and his prestige. He was, and he was always, uh, in his, his younger years, he was openly immoral. Furthermore, he talks about how he stole and how he was a liar. But God brought him to an end of himself, to a place where he was poor in spirit and lifted him up to bring him into the kingdom of heaven. That's the only way. You go from brokenness to being in his kingdom. Another guy you probably heard, Martin Luther, Catholic theologian, brilliant mind. And in the 16th century, he's the one who realized all of the rituals and all of the personal beatings that he inflicted upon himself. These things could never merit and earn God's favor. You just simply receive it by grace. You come with brokenness. And friends, that it is, that's true for us today. We just got to singing, Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. But are you really there? Do you really understand how much you need God? And are you trusting in him? You see, we're not free when we're in bondage to sin. That's what we need is the gospel. The gospel is the key to the kingdom. The gospel of understanding that God is sovereign, that he has made all people and he's created every single person, made them in his image. Widespread diversity, but every single person is made in his image. That we are all sinners. We have all missed the mark and that is why we need the Savior. We need Christ, the God-man, to pay for our sins. And Christ has not only offered us forgiveness, but for those who are trusting in him, he has set us apart to be his disciples, to follow him, to grow and mature, to be those in whom he does his work. That is the gospel. And until the human heart is changed, there is going to be no change in human behavior. I, I am grieved by what is going on in our country. It pains me. It bothers me. This, it's so, what's the word even? It is so disheartening and heartbreaking to see what's happening. But I know that until hearts are changed, hearts are broken and brought to Christ, we're just going to have a lot more of the same. We say we want answers and we want solutions and we want peace and unity. And that's exactly what God is offering in Christ. That is what is being presented. The question is, are we poor in spirit because only those who are going to experience the true blessings of being in his kingdom? You see, the gospel is the key to the kingdom. That's why Jesus said, John 14, 6, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And I want you to know that God is, even at this present time, as he's been doing now for hundreds of years, he's bringing people from all sorts of different backgrounds, every tribe, every tongue, every nation, people who have very vastly different experiences, who look very different from one another, and he is uniting them in himself by bringing them to Christ, where they not only see their sin, but they're trusting in Christ and Christ alone. And I want, if you want a picture of heaven, in Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, you've got one. They're singing a new song, and it's, they're saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain. Who's that? Jesus. And purchase for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. There is a Christ-centered diversity, all unified in him. 
And that is God's hope to a broken world because that is the reality of the joy of heaven. It is the pageantry of the nations, the celebration of all of this widespread creative difference that God made, and yet a beautiful unity that comes to place in the person and the work of Christ. You see, humility of heart lives in those who are in the kingdom of heaven. That's why James wrote in James chapter 4, verse 6, but God gives a greater grace, for God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. If you will not have God, you're going to still act out in pride. You're going to live in your own self-sufficiency. I got news for you. God is opposed to the proud. You should expect more of the same. But he gives grace to the humble. To those who are poor in spirit, why, they're blessed, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Without humility, friends, you and I live with the hardness of heart. And so what we need to do is we need to ask God, and we come before him, Lord, would you examine my heart? We express our thoughts and our repentance and our hurt and our request to God, and we engage and encourage people. And so we ask God, Lord, would you help me to love deeply, to listen empathetically, to live graciously? Because I need you. I am broken before you, but I am your disciple. And I know that you're doing your work through your people. And I'm asking, Lord, that you would do it through me. And so, friends, I am challenging you to memorize this beatitude. Verse 3, I know you can do it. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But I don't want you just to memorize it. I am asking that you would ask God that all of us, in his strength, would be able to live it. Because this is what the world needs to see. Those who are in the kingdom of heaven, showing the likeness of God, his love, his grace, his mercy, because these are the people that are truly blessed. You see, the poor in spirit demonstrate the power of God. Their best-selling author, Malcolm Gladwell, in his book, David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants, he writes about when he went to Winnipeg um, to visit a woman by the name of Wilma Dirksen. Thirty years ago, the Dirksons experienced every parent's absolute worst nightmare. Their daughter, Candace, 30 years ago, had been abducted and murdered. And Gladwell was amazed as he's talking with Wilma and as she recounted these tragic events and how her and her husband responded, he picked up when, on this when she said, Wilma says, we would like to know who the person or persons who murdered Candace are so we could share, hopefully, a love that seems to be missing in these people's lives. And she said at that time, I can't say at this point, I forgive this person. But she said, the stress, but Gladwell noticed the stress was on the phrase at this point. You know, 30 years ago when that happened, they were already thinking, I need to forgive. I need to share and show the love of God. And Gladwell writes, I wanted to know where the Dirksons found the strength to say these things. Where do two people find the power to forgive in a moment like that? And the answer was their relationship with Jesus Christ. 
it is a power that Gladwell said, you know, I, I grew up in a Christian home. I was familiar, but I had gotten far away from it. And as he put it, he said, I've always believed in God. I've grasped the logic of the Christian faith. What I've had a hard time seeing is God's power. And sitting in Wilma Dirksen's garden, he said, I saw that power. He realized that, quote, the louder claims of material advantage and life's and the world's ideas about power had him looking in the wrong places. Seeing God's power in action led him to rediscover his Christian faith. And friends, that's what God intends, to show his power through his people. Humility of heart lives in those who are in the kingdom of God. Let's pray. Lord, here we are, broken, and it is evident. And we're asking, Lord, right now that you would, in the hearts of all those who are listening, who have never come to a place where they've truly trusted in Christ, but now they see not only their need, but the wonders of a Savior. Would they pray with me and say, God, I, I repent. I turn from myself. I have a change of heart, a change of mind, change my direction, change my life. Unite me with your Son. Would you forgive me, Lord? And would you lead me and fill me? And Lord, for all of us who do know you, Lord, may we remember the kingdom manifesto. It begins, blessed are the poor in spirit. God, help us to realize that humility before you is this great gift. It's how the kingdom of heaven thrives and the people in it. So Lord, would you do your work in us and through us? May we be part of your solution to the great challenges that we are facing. And so we pray and ask that you'd be glorified in our lives and we do so in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Grant. Wow, what a powerful, sobering message uh, as we think about uh, responding to this kingdom manifesto. Uh, my name's Ryan. I'm the associate pastor here at Fellowship Bible Church. And if you're worshiping with us online and you've never taken uh, the moment to go to our website, fellowshipwaco.org, and just click on Connect with Fellowship, we would love to know that you're joining us and also how we can pray for you and then how we also can get you connected. You know, one of the things that we're, we're sharing and encouraging all of our church this, uh, this month in response, uh, really just, just to the gospel, is that we would be a people of prayer. And so as we think about what does that mean, you know, as Grant was preaching, we have uh, a global pandemic. We have civil unrest. We do long for unity, for stability, for hope, for justice and peace. So here's what we can do. Fellowship, we can be a people of prayer. We can go before the throne of God and ask him, uh, just God, what would you, how would you have me respond? And we are a part of that solution. Uh, and so God, how do we respond as we listen intentionally, as we love exceptionally? How do we demonstrate and show the love of Jesus? Well, we do that when he works through us. And so let me encourage you as I want to live this out myself. Let's be a people of prayer. Let's go to him daily and let's respond with how he is going to lead us 
during this time. Uh, he is, it is through his church uh, that he wants to bring this solution, to bring the gospel. Uh, we truly are, uh, the gospel is the key, key to the kingdom. So let me encourage you with that. So as we look at prayer ministry, here's a couple ways also that you can, you can respond. We have a prayer chain that goes out. So when prayers come in, we send them out to folks that you can be praying. If you have prayers, you can certainly send them in uh, to office at fellowshipwaco.org. Uh, and if you'd like to receive that and you're not receiving it, let us know. But also every Sunday morning, we have a prayer team that meets. And so we want to encourage you to join. Uh, this is led by Thomas and Lisa Aguilar and also Peter and Mina Park. Uh, they're leading this prayer group every Sunday morning at 915. The instructions are on the website or you can look on the connection that goes out weekly. We encourage you to think about that. You know, as we think about next steps, as we go to the throne of God, he also wants us to grow deep. And we've been talking about this for a couple weeks. So students, if you're out there, uh, Iron Nights has begun. It's our summer series uh, led by uh, Nathan Blackman, our student ministries director, and also his, his small group team, his student ministries team. And let me encourage you to make the most of this summer. They're meeting at Woodway Park on Wednesday nights. Uh, if you didn't join this last Wednesday, there's still time to jump in, build relationships, have fun, learn from God's word. They're going through this transformative series called Fighting Temptation. This will be a great series as you kind of process and live this out and talk it through with your small group leaders. So junior high students, y'all be meeting in one part and then high school, uh, high school uh Guys and gals, you'll be in another part. But if, if you haven't joined, we want to encourage you. Hey, let's come together, obviously in socially responsible ways, but also to just grow and to live it out uh, during this time, high school and junior high students. And then also we started our summer series for adults to grow deep called Wild Places. You know, when we look back, God has used some really extraordinary, uh, unforeseen circumstances to take his people through. I think a lot of us can relate to that, can't we? But when we look at his faithfulness, he is always there to help us through the wilderness. He is a faithful God. And so we're going to be looking at the series called Wild Places. We meet together online. We actually break into small groups. And uh, it is it was a lot of fun. So if you haven't signed up for that, you can also go to the website and sign up for this study again. It's a, a, our adult summer Bible study called Wild Places. Hey, and if you're not connected here, let me tell you, uh, if, if you don't think it's possible, we had 40 plus folks join online and they connected in small groups. We're going to do more of that. Again, it's through this study. Uh, and we have over 60 signed up, so we encourage you to join us. And also families, if you want to invest in your students, in your kids, along with uh, what our children's directors are handing out and passing out and, and, uh, and leading y'all through on Sunday mornings, we've also packaged wild places to be done where you can show the videos. Uh, we have crafts that we can send out to you. Uh, that they put together. And this is an opportunity for you parents to invest in your kids uh, in, in meaningful ways this summer as well. And then lastly, I know it's a lot of announcements, but hey, our next step is next Sunday. For those of you who are comfortable, um, we are coming back face-to-face in person at 1045, Lord willing, and having worship here at Fellowship Bible Church. Again, 1045 here. And a lot of details are going into that this week. You certainly pray for us. Um, and those details will also go out in the vision guide, the fourth installment. It's going to be sent out late this coming week. But again, for those of you who'd like to join us in person, 1045 next week here at Fellowship Bible Church, we will be having uh, a live in-person service. But let me also tell you this, if you're at home thinking, hey, that's not me, that's okay. 
hey, we are one body in Christ and we're going to continue to provide these online services so you can continue to worship with us. Okay, so we're super excited about that. Be looking for that vision guide that's going to come out later this week, uh, sharing with you all the details. And so that we don't miss it as we head out today, as we think about uh, the sermon that was preached to us, that should really take us to a place of uh, introspection. That should say, Lord, I need you so much that I do need to draw near to your throne of grace every single day, if not every single hour. How does God bring hope to a broken world? He does it through you. And he does it through me. Not because of any of our work, but might we draw near to God with utter humility, trusting in Christ and Christ alone. So as you head out this week, I hope you experience God like never before. But let's do it because we're drawing near to him with utter humility, being a people of prayer. And then we're going to turn around and we're going to demonstrate the love of Christ like never before. Fellowship Bible Church, have a blessed week.